0: Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and nothing should be construed as investment or legal advice. Now for a word from OnRamp, OnRamp is a Bitcoin asset management platform built on multi-institution custody. Leveraging our partnerships with industry veterans BitGo and CoinCover, OnRamp's multi-institution custody is a segregated vault, requiring two of three institutions at any point in time to sign once a client's unique permissions have been met. Our industry-leading best-in-class approach to custody helps individuals and institutions secure new and existing Bitcoin positions. All keys are held in deep cold storage and kept 100% offline, managed with institutional grade security best practices. The custody solution eliminates single points of failure and reduces counterparty risks, ensuring maximum security and peace of mind. OnRamp's suite of products includes our custody offering, a spot Bitcoin fund, private wealth services and inheritance planning, and managed wealth for advisors. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or a veteran in the space, we would love to connect with you to understand your needs and how we can serve you. Please visit our website at onrampbitcoin.com, where you can schedule a consultation and connect directly with our team.
1: What you're telling me is that music is about to stop, and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of darkness. 1974, 1987, 92, 97, 2000, whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves.
2: I say when we sell. Hey,
0: hey, 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 I say when we sell.
3: Gentlemen, we're on the last trade, and we just had the last trade of Bitcoin without an ETF. Today's the first day of the ETF. There's your corny opening for the week.
1: It's good. It's all good.
3: Dave and Larry, we're pumped to have you here. Is oh, this momentous? Good. Is this a momentous occasion? That's the uh, that's the big question.
1: Yeah, yeah. No. Way, you see it, you know, there's a hundred trillion dollars, depending upon who's measuring what you're measuring. Let's say there's conservatively 40 to 100 trillion dollars of RIA money that couldn't buy a Trezor and couldn't buy GBTC and couldn't buy Bitcoin in any other form that now has the ability to just click a button and buy Bitcoin. I mean, paper Bitcoin admittedly, but it's not the same as holding your own keys. But, you know, assuming the auditors are not corrupt, uh, you're actually buying Bitcoin with one of these things.
2: So you're saying you're saying of maybe a hundred trillion uh, now there's suddenly demand to get maybe a one percent allocation into an asset class that is currently one trillion dollars. What's the marginal yeah, impact right? of
1: that? Well, and, and and it's better than that, Jesse, because as we all know, one trillion dollar asset class today, seventy you know, percent of that are in what we would consider to be pretty damn strong hands that haven't moved their key their coin for over a year, or maybe in some cases two. So they're really bidding on, let's call it, three hundred billion of yeah. what I would call tradable coin today. Um, you know, soon to be in April to be growing at you know eight tenths of a percent per year, and now growing at one and a half percent per year. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think people are going to be shocked. I mean, I, I I think Samson might be onto something here. We'll have to see.
4: I think the other thing is you know you look at like a galaxy. You know, obviously a real smart group of people there that are estimating 13 to $40 billion of ETF inflows over the next three years. Like that just sounds too light to me, like way too light when you think about, I mean, all sorts of things like, you know, like we're all getting caught up in the flows and ETFs. But what what no one's talking about in the last five days that I see is this whole macro backdrop, which I'm sure we'll get into that might have a black swan event that then catalyzes real movements into this asset class. And so the good news is the on-ramps to this asset class for those RIAs that used to do the traditional 60-40 equity bonds, you know, if we ever get a, you know, a real upside down bond market, this, the on-ramps to this asset class got really easy. So I, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I thought Galaxy was way too conservative in that. Um, and to Larry's point... You know, if, if there's a trillion dollars at a minimum over the next few years chasing an asset class of, you know, call it 300 billion, as he's saying, of, of you know, call it a third of the Bitcoin market cap. Um, but, you know, look, I, I just it's unbelievable kind of how much su- demand over supply this will be. And, and then we don't even and then we could even get into the scarcity and the halving and all that. So it's it's all a lot of interesting things happening.
3: Well, yeah. not only. The macroeconomic uh, landscape that's a tailwind behind this right now, but what does the ETF, BlackRock coming in, Galaxy, Valkyrie, Arc, the 11 ETFs getting approved, what does that do for FOMO from other types of large investors? Like I wrote this in the newsletter last night. How many nation states does this send a light bulb off in their minds? Right. Like, oh, maybe we should get Bitcoin. Like that's a whole slug of capital I don't think people are even talking about it. everybody's hyper focused on the RIA market, the institutional capital, but what does this do for other layers of the hierarchy of big capital allocators?
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you think of the sovereign wealth funds that probably haven't really embraced it, you know, in, in the middle East and other places. I mean, other than El Salvador, there hasn't really been another country to embrace it. Um, you know, none of the big corporations have embraced it other than, you know, MicroStrategy. Um, you know, there's there's just not enough coin to go around at these kind of prices, and I, I think people are going to be shocked at you know the prices that uh, that emerge as a result of that fact. I mean, I, I can't see how we're not at a hundred thousand soon, and and you know two to five hundred within a year or two. I mean, maybe less, but certainly you know within a year or two.
2: Yeah, pretty uh, pretty incredible recent stat from MicroStrategy's recent buying spree. Um, they purchased 35% of all the coins mined in the last quarter. Right. Uh, and that's and that's a, a company that's a 10 billion dollar market cap company that's the 1500th biggest company in the world. Right. That's small potatoes really. Right.
1: And he's not stopping, you
2: know. <laughs> he, yeah. And people. and now who's joining him is it's Larry it's it's your old classmates, people who run, you know, BlackRock and other large yeah. trad five firms who suddenly have a vested interest in getting their clients to think that bitcoin should be part of their portfolio hey larry you know who else isn't stopping none of us none of the people listening <laughs> on the pod
5: i've uh you know a, a lot of times i'm sure we've all experienced this in regular world or like bitcoin world where you go full circle once you get educated you kind of like end up back at like the meta level of oh this is like good for me or this was like good for bitcoin And I had this realization we've been talking about. um, I think we all agree here. These products are inferior to holding spot in various forms or fashions. But I had this idea of like, man, this is a a trap and all the things associated with uh, what happened to GBTC, independent of like government uh, intervention. Just the fact that the Bitcoin, you know, is sitting somewhere where you can't take delivery of. But then I had the realization. It's like, we look at this space so long. We've been looking at it so long that we think about it in the terms of like our allocations versus what a traditional individual that is sane. uh, for purposes, It's a like 1% to 3% alternative asset that's sprinkled on top of their 60-40. And my hope is, and I think this is what we've seen play out, is as you get educated with that 1%, 3%, whether it's somebody buying on Cash App, buying a little through a river, or looking at it through their brokerage account, you start to actually pay attention to like, what is this thing I'm buying? What am I doing? And then you learn about its properties. And that's why i think like this is always long-term bullish for the asset it's underlying fundamentals and companies building the right way because over time that kind of like cream rises to the top of oh wait i don't want this all 30 40 50 percent sitting with coinbase or blackrock and, and that's really where um you know companies building the right way step in
1: so yeah, one, one that re- would be true is that investors chase performance and i mean we were up 150 some odd percent last year and I suspect this year is gonna be as good or better. And I mean, I was at the gym this morning with a guy who just, you know, was kicking himself for missing the $15,000 buy opportunity. And his logic was that, well, I thought when FTX blew up, that was it, all this shit was going away. And I said, well, you know, he didn't do the time to, to differentiate this from FTX. And he said, well, what about Ethereum? You know, there are use cases there. And I said, you know, okay, maybe, but, you know the monetary policy there is totally flawed and i noticed this morning um they were talking about another 33 percent dilution in the ethereum base so um you know it just and this is a guy who's a very sophisticated money manager he knows what he's doing so to speak i mean he's not he's not a bitcoiner but i bet she's becoming one <laughs> so and there's just going to be a lot of that i mean it, it goes back to how early we all have been and how you know people have painted us as being crazy Um, And yet what we've really seen was quite logical and we knew we weren't crazy. We were just early.
3: And that brings up a good question. Is this the crossing the chasm moment for Bitcoin? I think that's been a big topic of discussion. And is this the inflection point that really thrust Bitcoin to a level where there's no going back? We're sort of leaving the early adopters phase into uh, mainstream adoption over the next Three to five it feels years.
1: Feels that way to me. I mean, if you that that model, of Mark, Malcolm Gladwell's model, says when you get as many years as it takes to get to ten percent, it takes the same number to get to ninety percent. And I, it's hard to know where we're at, but being a, it would strike me that we might be at ten percent. Maybe we're a tad lower. I'm not sure. I, but I th- boy, this sure opens it up to everybody, and yeah, it just th- makes it super easy, you know.
2: Absolutely, and so. I think it's way earlier than ten percent, and okay. and that's where that's where the numbers come in. Um, that are, it's kind of hard to to believe them, really. But, you know, you can look on chain at how many addresses have zero point one Bitcoin in them, right? So that at this point, that's five thousand um, dollars, and that might be too high of a bar at this point. So maybe we should lower it. But that that's the easy cutoff to see on chain. There's four million addresses with 0.1 Bitcoin in them, uh, which is to say, there's there's at most four million people in the world who have saved uh, in an address they control um, five thousand so, dollars worth of Bitcoin.
1: To be to be and, completely fair, though, to be completely fair, though, Jesse, there there are some address There's some people who own it in Coinbase or Gemini yeah. or other pieces. I mean, you're right. Yeah. That's four million self custody people who own a 10th of a coin or more. Right. Know, there's, they're probably in all those brokerage accounts, what I would guess, when did Coinbase say their customer count was like 15 million, 20 million? I mean, there've gotta be, you know, 20, 30 million brokerage accounts as well that have some, right? And we don't, we, and we don't know how much, but.
2: Absolutely, and, and then it becomes a, a, a yeah, it's it's a bit fuzzy there, of like where do you draw the line on what is adoption? Um, right. And you know, I think it's I think you can make the argument, and I've made it in the past that that you know, if you really understand Bitcoin, you will have used the network to secure some amount,
1: you know, right. to have that's right. A um, bit yeah, of deep so deep understanding owns there are four million people with deep understanding. I agree with exactly, that.
2: and so th- that's a high bar, but that that's zero point zero point zero five percent of of people in the world <laughs> like, right. like that's how low we're talking I, I actually will push back i think it's one tenth of whatever you guys
5: just agreed on the four million i think what the the measure is material wealth Cause material wealth basically signals you've looked long enough to at least say if it's on Coinbase and it, it evaporates or understand it because a lot of people just have accounts with a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars or 4,000, I think okay. material wealth, IE over 10% of a, a single person's personal account or portfolio is less than 400,000 people globally. No, wow, yeah, I find that hard to believe.
4: Uh, Jesse, well, you've done some work like a year ago on some of that, right? Trying to figure out that that, that was good data you had.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I triangulated, that, you know, the, the best source we have is, is the, the ledger. Um, you know, that's the only transparent data that we have out there. And, and that's where that that 4 million addresses uh, comes from. And it's been ticking up nicely over over the last four years that went from 3 million to 4 million. So more people are adopting and, you know, despite the fact that, that 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 in dollar terms has become has gone from to now $5,000 to to meet that 0.1 Bitcoin bar. Yeah, um, that number is going up. Um, And then from there, you have to triangulate like what percent of people have, you know, understand Bitcoin have meaning meaningfully saved in Bitcoin, but they've done it in GBTC. Despite, you know, despite understanding Bitcoin and and realizing that it probably shouldn't just have GBTC. and then there it's kind of your your classic you know back of the envelope consultant math to come up with something but um yeah the the hard and fast numbers are on the ledger and and and, and that's where it's kind of incredible how early it is you, you know if you if you look at just those numbers which really reflect like deep level of understanding of bitcoin um it is so so early that you know there's that's no surprise. There's only one Michael Saylor, uh, you know, doing this with the corporate balance sheet. There's only one El, El Salvador so far. We're, we're just so early still.
4: Is there a call? I mean, apologize if I'm wrong, but I thought one of the conclusions that I remember reading your analysis was that if we counted people with 10,000 U.S. dollars of net worth in the world, it was well less than one percent of the global population had exposed to Bitcoin. Is that something like that?
2: Yeah, yeah. I was using a, I was using a, a data source that, that said that 2 billion people in the world have a net worth of $10,000. And so that to me is realistically the market for who's going to be interested in savings technology. Uh, and right. Bitcoin is a savings technology. And so of that number, 4 million of 2 billion is half a percent uh, right. of that group has, or sorry, less than half of, of a percent, um, that that's that 0.05% number because, uh, sorry, that other direction. I'm putting you on the <laughs> that's I'm putting you Yeah. That's 0.2% of that group. Um, which, you know, however, however way you cut it, it's incredibly small.
5: Look, go ahead, Mike. Larry and David, um, uh, I'd be curious, like, uh, you guys have backgrounds as in you know tradfi, you've seen the markets like, what has been your um pre like disposer kind of like thoughts around how stuff starts getting getting a little weird? Like I was you know pinging some people before pre trading started, right? And you're looking at twenty five percent up. It's like, did they buy that Bitcoin? They had to buy the Bitcoin because nobody's going to take that risk. But like you know, you're looking at markets that trade within certain time frames. You have a twenty four seven hour, uh, twenty four uh, days a week, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week global asset, like walk us through kind of your understanding, or at least to the extent you do have it, um, just the market structure from the authorized participants to the shares and like where things can get dislocated. I don't have that background, but it feels like it's not going to be clean long term uh, as these things start to mature that we're talking about and demand increases. And so I'd be curious if you guys have any thoughts on all that.
1: Go ahead,
4: Well. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, Michael, but it's funny, like Larry and I actually had a conversation yesterday about that of, and I'll get to that in a sec, but I, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about this. Like I get, I think back to the Microsoft, sorry, the, the Facebook IPO from 12 years ago or whatever it was. And, and I don't know if you, if you go back and look at a stock chart. Um, actually I could share the screen if you want and pull it up, but um, you know, basically, well, I, I won't bother, but, 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 If you look back at the the, the Facebook IPO, the thing kind of moonshotted up the first few hours and then bang, the next three months absolutely got cut in half, down fifty percent. And it was the classic like, well, there you go. It was too much hype going into it. Institutions sold to retail, thing craters. And so, you know, having touched the stove like that in markets over years, you, you get nervous when you see this hype and build up to this ETF and and whether it's going to be $40 billion and you know of inflows over how long will it be, be and where will the price go, it just naturally gets me nervous um, in the short run. But in the medium term, we, we look at kind of those flows we talked about and just how early we are in terms of global adoption, like Jesse's just talking about, and just how easy the on-rants are now for your regular folk RIA. To do these portfolio construction analysis now to realize that better risk adjusted returns happen to your portfolio if you get away from an old 60-40 equity bonds and you start adding in Bitcoin. And then and but oh by the way, Mr. Jones, you can buy, you know, this ETF and and own some Bitcoin and have that portfolio. Like this just becomes this virtual positive feedback loop over the next six to nine to twelve months of money coming in and 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 those. ETFs forced to go and turn around and buy Bitcoin um, and and suddenly you just get this virtual feedback loop. So it feels highly probable that while there is some risk that this has gotten overhyped and people could get disappointed seven days from now because the money isn't as flowing in as fast. I do think that over six to nine to 12 months, as Larry was saying earlier, the money's going to flow in. And then we haven't even got into a black swan event, which, again, we'll get into macro, I'm sure. But eventually you're going to have. People running to inflation hedge assets um, when the money supply of the Fed begins flowing again. And Lori Logan, who I think is one of the, the Dallas Fed chairs, probably one of the most important people to listen to. She's the one who was the big architect around all of the programs from 2020 that the Fed used to go throw money in the system. And here she is saying over the weekend, this you know, four days ago, that it might be time to to stop with QT, she's seeing some of the issues in the repo market and reverse repo market. And so uh, I'm being long winded, but to to land the plane, we just see more high probability of positive catalysts for Bitcoin and flows of capital and macro backdrop um, that I think that, you know, as Marty's asking about to an inflection point, I think we will look back at this as a key inflection point. And, and, And in the Zen philosophy too, I think we'll look back and say that Sam Bankman fried might have been one of the best blessings ever for Bitcoin because it began to teach the global markets about the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, and Gary Gensler and the SEC helped to kind of further educate that through processes like this. So let me pause there, but you know, obviously, me, we're excited.
1: Let me add a few things, uh, Michael. So. um I think the job of these guys is to make the price of their product, you know, their ETF, track the price of the coin you know, one for one with as little slippage as possible. And so I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just guessing based on how these things typically work, that, that they've got you know, internal algorithms designed to kind of instantly buy. As they get more flows in, they get more purchases, um, they attract money into their, you know, into their bucket. They literally have to instantaneously turn around and buy the coin because if they don't, um, you know, and the coin does a god candle it goes up ten thousand. Well, then they're going to slip. They're not going to, you know, they're, you know, at the end of the year, somebody's going to measure how they did against the coin, and they don't want to have a lot of slippage, if any. And so, I think it's going to really be kind of one for one. They see they see new flow in, they instantly buy coin. Um, Where it gets interesting is, of course, they close down at 4 p.m. because the market shuts. (laughs) And and so what happens if a God candle happens overnight? Well, you know, everyone who's in it already participates, but you can't go buy the ETF, you know, in the middle of the night. And so, uh, but that's fine. In the morning, the new price opens up and you want to bring new money in? Fine, bring it in and you're paying the higher price now. So Mm -hmm. I think that it'll actually be, you know, if they do it right, and I, I presume they will, and another thing, another, two other comments I'd want to make. One is that some people say, well, this is going to be paper Bitcoin, this, that, and the other. You know, look, we know who we're dealing with here, and I've dealt with the gold guys for 30 years, so I, can, I know how good they are at screwing around with this shit. But I think that in this particular case, there are going to be auditors involved. And so for these people to, you know, take money in and not buy the coin, i.e. create paper Bitcoin, I think is going to be a problem, unless they can find a corrupt auditor, which is possible. But I wouldn't rate it as highly likely. So I, I think that they're gonna they're actually gonna, it's not gonna be paper Bitcoin. I and mean, there's nothing in the filings and all the and, and so I want to move to the GLD, which is the gold ETF, which is very similar to these things and and created a lot of the problems over in the gold space. Um, but you know, in that particular ETF filing, there were all kinds of outs where they could have custodians and subcustodians, they could buy paper gold, they could have futures contracts. And of course, one of the things that a lot of us who looked at that thing said is These guys are buying paper gold from Lehman Brothers, and if Lehman Brothers fails, the gold's not going to get delivered. And these don't have any of that language in the ETF filing, so I think they've actually got to legitimately buy the coins. Final point, um, Nico on um, uh, Twitter had it this morning, a really great chart, and I retweeted it. I don't know if you guys have the ability to pull it up, but it shows basically when the gold ETF was approved in 2004, and then what happened to the gold price between 2004 and 2011. And it was pretty substantial, you know, the the appreciation in gold. So, you know, people weren't going out and buying gold coins. That was a pain in the ass um, in the early 2000s, you know, to go to your... I mean, people just didn't do it. But suddenly, you know, ETF arrives. You can buy a gold proxy. Uh, Turns out it was quite flawed, but you can still buy a gold proxy. There you go. And, you know, look at that, right? Uh, What was that? November of 2004, the first, you know, GLD ETF comes out. Boom, and uh, so you know, will this repeat exactly? Probably not, but I think the trend is is pretty indicative of what's going on. So we're, you know, we're we're incredibly pulled up on this whole thing. I mean, and you know, Sailor is too, right? I mean, he's the, one of the smartest guys, if not the smartest guy in the space, and he just said, you know, folks, this is a once in a generation opportunity to front run a lot of money um, that that you know wants to own the ship but can't. Because of the structure, your typical RIA cannot own Bitcoin or could not own Bitcoin until today. And so that's that's really, that's the news story here. And I think we're now in uncharted waters. And, you know, Samson Mao says he thinks it's going to a million bucks. I mean, who am I to say he's not right? I mean, it, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I bet on it for sure. But I, I mean, obviously, I think it's getting to a million eventually. Um, you know, but what's the time frame? I don't know. It, it could be faster than we think. So those are kind of my thoughts on how it's working.
3: And anchoring back to the analog of Facebook's IPO that you explained, Dave, like that's people have been calling the ETF launch the IPO moment for Bitcoin. But like we all know, and there's exchanges that trade 24-7, 365. The difference here is that Facebook going public has a bunch of insiders that want to liquidate some of their stock to monetize all the work they put in. For, for many years and I think this is a different animal in the sense that everybody that's bought in has bought in just because uh, because of what Larry just explained that you have the chance to front run immense amounts of capital and I, I don't think those dynamics of like an IPO launch insiders dump is gonna play out and things are gonna get really weird.
4: Yeah, I think it's a great point, Maria that that in that case of of Facebook, you had institutions selling to retail that then the mom and pop got held holding the bag. Now look, to be clear, Facebook went down 50% in the next three months. It was one of the most phenomenal buying opportunities. It's up literally like a hundred X from there. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think that that similar thing. I, I'm just saying could play out in the short run where, you know, I think you're kind of, it just feels like the markets broadly in the last two months since the Halloween bottom has had a little levered speculator citadel type trend following investor pop in the markets, right? And and ignoring now global economy. And so I'm just saying that, you know, and partly because I'm hoping I, I'd actually like to see Bitcoin settle back in and then be able to keep adding and just buying more. Now, like you guys, we're always dollar cost averaging and ultimately it won't matter. We'll look back someday on these prices and say, God, what a bargain this was at 48,000. But I, I think you're right, Marty, to, to agree that the, the irony is mm-hmm. as we're selling to mom and pop retail on that Facebook IPO. This is the exact opposite. This is now the IPO of Bitcoin, as you're saying, but for the institutions now to start getting involved. And all of us that have been here for a while now, you know, we're, we're kind of riding that wave. We front ran them, as Larry's saying. So, yeah, no, I this is in, in general, let me be clear on the medium to longer term like, as Larry said, we couldn't be more bullish. I mean, this is this is really a huge catalyst to allow anyone in the world to buy it. Uh, and the beauty of this asset class is anyone in the world can buy it so long as you have a mobile phone. Uh, and one last p- final point, uh, this guy I was just listening to someone overnight was making this point that, you know, if 50% of the world is supposed to have CBDCs thrown upon them in the next year, um, Again, in that spirit of that Zen philosophy of if Same Bank and Freed might have been ended up being the best thing that happened to Bitcoin to, to to create that delineation between crypto and Bitcoin, same thing here. Maybe these CBDCs, as this gentleman was pointing out, create each creates a, a, a tutelage for people in the world to understand how to trade digital cash, and therefore the eventual run away from fiat currencies to Bitcoin become that much easier, that they're doing a favor for Bitcoin ultimately by introducing CBDC. Um, so you know, again, I don't want to get too philosophical on that, but, but sometimes the things that you think are so bad aren't. They're actually they're actually really good.
3: Now that, I mean, I just saw a stat on Twitter. We're an hour into the trading day. There's $1.7 billion of volume uh, across these 11 ETFs. How many... How many new Bitcoin not maybe not Bitcoiners as we would define them as people holding their own keys, but how many uh people, new people have material exposure over ten thousand dollars to Bitcoin today? Yeah. So and that's I don't how think many it, did we just it, add?
4: It looks like there's been six hundred billion uh six hundred million uh billion in uh or, or million in um no billion in, in uh GBTC as well, right? Yeah. No
5: counted in that. Um, oh, so, so there was an interesting tweet the other day. That said, can you say you're early if you, uh, if you got in after the ETF, <laughs> you know, we joke around being so early. I think that like to your crossing the chasm point, it's kind of like, this is, it's, it's a mainstream. It's as mainstream as you can yeah. get from an, like, uh, yeah.
2: yeah, it's, it's absolutely a new, a new era, but, but yeah, to, to, to that crossing the chasm point. Weirdly, I, I still think that that is way in the future for us. We're still in, you know, based on the numbers I was talking about, firmly in the innovators uh, stage. It just feels like we've come so far because we have. But you know, the, the next fifteen years will be going through the, the the steep part of the S curve, uh, the adoption S curve. And and Larry, I was I was just reflecting on, you know, that the chart you brought up about about gold was. An amazing one to show the power of adding a, a channel of buying power to an asset, um, but the, the you know the the big difference you've already pointed out um, and done a great job of highlighting how uh, Bitcoin's more auditable, and that you know creates this barrier to to the paper Bitcoin problem, um, but on top of that. Gold is, has kind of historically been the domain of nation states, right? Like it's, it has such a long history that it has become so centralized over time. And Bitcoin, you know, doesn't have any nation states hoarding it at all yet. And so it's it's kind of hard to, you know, it, who has the authority to to meddle in a paper gold market? Um, and and muddy the waters. Really, only nation states are 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 able to do that and get away with it. I think, or you know, with with the blessing of nation states at least. And there's no, you, in order to muddy the waters, you have to have you have to control some of the supply, um, right. or at least be a player in that market. And there there's no nation state player in Bitcoin yet. So I think that's an additional barrier to
1: effectively. I would have, I would, I would yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I would also assume that the on-chain analytics people will be able to see and figure out. I mean, look, you know, we just figured out earlier, there's all, you know, the, the BlackRock um, Trust is already to date, what are we a couple of hours now, has already bought $400 million worth of Bitcoin. Um, you know, you can't hide that. That's, you know, there have got to be some on-chain transactions going on. Somebody's going to be able to figure out, where they are now, they can kind of keep adding addresses and doing different stuff. And I'm sure they will try and mask what they're doing as much as they can. But um, you know, there's a bunch of great people who do on chain analytics that are going to be able to, I think, look through and see some of this shit. And you can never do that with gold. I mean, it's the gold is just completely opaque. And, and frankly, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of the nation states lie about the gold. I mean, I think, you know, the United States is supposed to have 261 million ounces or 8,133 tons. And I don't think we do. I mean, Ron Paul told me personally, he's pretty sure that Fort Knox is empty. So, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I can't dispute that. Um, so, you know, yeah, this is a much better mechanism all around.
5: Can, you, can we talk about Franklin uh, Templeton putting laser eyes on a uh, Benjamin Franklin? Is that uh <laughs> does that mean we, does that mean we won or well, like, what is
1: uh, the clothes? <laughs> There's so many great things that are coming out of this so the other one i love is uh, the valkyrie guys deciding to name their their ticker symbols burr i mean how great is that (laughs) about trolling these guys you know i mean there's just a lot of there's a lot of good stuff and then of course you know yesterday's debacle how about the sec not having not having a 2fa you know um check on their on their website i mean it's
3: it's poetic it's poetic it's it's beautifully poetic
1: just clown world all over the place and yeah, uh, maybe it, it's a good chance to move into kind of the other side of the macro piece, which David and I are writing our fourth quarter letter about.
0: Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in exploring any of these topics further or want to learn more about how we can help you secure a new or existing Bitcoin allocation, get in touch with our team at onrampbitcoin.com. We look forward to supporting you on your Bitcoin journey.
1: Um. The December numbers just came out, and the December U.S. federal deficit is twenty percent, up twenty percent year over year. So, for the quarter ended December, the U.S. ran a five hundred round numbers five ten I think five hundred billion dollar deficit. And and the first quarter is typically small, so that would imply compared to the others. So that would imply that you know for the year next year we're going to be over two trillion. We were one seven last year, would have been more, but the student debt thing got turned around. But anyway. You know, a $2 trillion deficit in a theoretically healthy economy, you know, with $34 trillion of debt, um, you know, they, they we think that, and our letter talks about this, we think that what happened last week, or I should say maybe not two weeks ago, um, is before, you know, Powell pivoted on the 13th. But before that, you know, the, the, the U.S. Treasury bond melted down 20% in September, October, and went over the 10-year, went over 5%. And we think that that set off alarm bells. And that's what led to them all coming out and saying, no, 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 we're probably done with this rate hike cycle. And it brought the tenure back in and it created liquidity in a lot of areas, which they needed to do because, you know, something was breaking. And our view is they're right on the edge of something breaking, and we don't know when it will formally break and break in size, but, you know, we, Silicon Valley Bank was an example of something breaking They stuffed that one back in the can but they're gonna, you know, something is going to break here. And if you read, you know, the zero hedge premium stuff, I mean, you know, as David was alluding to, you know, Lori Logan and, and the basis trade, and you know, there's, there's a lot, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated stuff, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of indicators that would suggest that the monetary plumbing is getting really messed up and that things are quite tight and that they're already starting to loosen. And I'm, I was surprised, we were surprised by this morning's CPI report. We thought they'd have it rigged to come in low, and it didn't, it kind of came in slightly hot. And that's not gonna help them. But we think we think that they they don't want to pivot because Powell doesn't want to be Arthur Burns, but we think they're actually being forced to pivot because of the the US federal government interest expense and how much of the budget it's chewing up. If they don't get those short term rates down out of that five percent range, you know, they're they're gonna they're gonna run into a complete, you know, bond market disaster. And so our view is that they will declare whether they have it or not. They're going to declare victory on inflation, and start you know unwinding QT and or dropping interest rates, um, even though they say they're not. Um, you know they also said they weren't going to, they weren't even thinking about thinking about raising, and they said inflation was transitory, and you know they consistently lie and are wrong, and you know at the end of the day, their number one mandate is keeping the system functioning. And it seems to us that there are a lot of clues that suggest that the system is close to not functioning. And um, and by the way, gold and Bitcoin smell it, right? I mean, that's why Bitcoin was up 150 last year. Gold was up 13 or 14 percent last year. I mean, you know, in in a in a very negative real interest rate environment, um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in a, in a in a in a positive real interest rate environment or close to positive real interest rate environment, they've really raised aggressively. You know, these two monetary, sound monetary assets have done pretty well, and we, we think that's only set to continue. And it's, you know, to us, it's a matter of when, not if, and, and we think the when is probably sometime in this year, 2024.
3: Yeah, I ran a left side of the bell curve analysis last week, and in uh, at the end of 2008, the ratio of national debt to N2 money stock was 1.29, and today it's 1.63. So wow. we've expanded the debt way more than we have the monetary base and as parker lewis likes to say there's too much debt and not enough dollars so you just think again left side of the bell curve looking at that ratio they're going to have to revert back yeah. to the mean by expanding the monetary base
1: yeah this is this is lynn's famous chart it's just you've got to have the monetary base go up in, in concert with the debt or else the whole thing blows up you know so it, it's it's coming and you know that's that's enormous that's a macro event that's enormously positive for sound money assets, just enormously positive. Um, and, but they've held, they've held it off. I mean, I, and I give them credit. I thought it was all over with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and they, they managed to stuff that one back in the can.
2: But uh, it, if and when a crisis hits and they have to un- unleash the monetary spigot, uh, that will ensure that Fed will be Arthur Burns in, in this.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's no question. That's where that's where they're headed. Um, yeah. Although, you know, there are some, I mean, Gunlock and others who say we could get some low inflation prints. I mean, David has done the research and pointed out that, yeah. um, you know, some of the housing stuff has come in a lot. I mean, the food was a problem in today's report, but the housing and other things have, have come gotten a lot softer. And honestly, I mean, the difficulty in navigating all of this is we're dealing with numbers that are, you know, they're cooked. I mean, that are, you know, we're dealing, I mean, they, they lie about all this shit. So, um, yeah fuzzy
4: at best, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, housing's 38% of the housing and rent owner's equivalent rent is, is like 38% of the CPI and just looking at kind of where those numbers are trending here over the next few years a few months because of the lag effects like we're definitely good despite today's surprise of CPI the number is going to keep working its way down. Um, it, it's most, most highly probable that it will play out that way and so you know, but you know, I, I think that we're talking about is more just that bigger issue. I mean, like I, I think probably the there's there's some black swans out there that no one in the world, even none of us are even thinking about that could pop up. But I think the biggest thing that I'm hearing that you know a lot of major Wall Street banks worry about is when does one of these auction treasury auction things really go afoul and 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 then suddenly you get what we witnessed kind of early fall this year with the tenure moving toward five percent. When do you see that happening throughout the curve, even in the T-bills, and suddenly now people start losing real faith in the bond market? Again, that's why I think this ETF is a big deal because I think then it's going to be really easy for the RIAs to say, maybe you should go buy some of that Bitcoin ETF, uh, Mr. Jones, and and, and, and with, with 2% of your bonds. And, and we'll see just an easy flow out that that's probably when the treasury will be mad as hell that Gensler allowed these on ramps to
5: happen so easily. So, Hey, uh, Larry, and you mentioned cooking the numbers, the, one of the stats that rung out to me, I saw early in the week was, um, from Peter St. about why are GDP, like we keep, uh, being confounded about like what what's happening why are the numbers, what they are, and it doesn't make sense in like anecdotal references. And he tweeted, uh, gdp and jobs define slowdown predictions question mark because most new jobs 56 percent last year were disguised as government spending in in new york and chicago or illinois uh it was 113 percent in illinois and 56 or 121 percent in new york uh wow. so while the economy is shrinking you know government spending government expenditures and so it, it, when i heard that early in the week i was, it was a little i mean it's kind of scary in the sense of like you're at this like tail end of this cycle where the government is basically taking up over 100% of jobs in these two states and how many are below that, right on that cusp, he just threw out those two numbers.
1: Yeah, and the, and the government has never been a bigger percentage of the economy, except World War II, where it was a huge percent, but and that's that'll be in our quarterly report as well, which we're in the process of finishing up, but um, you know, one of the things that we found interesting and people wonder, the biggest surprise to us last year was the stock market held together and the GDP held together, kind of grew at, I don't know, call it a two seven percent rate, annualized Um, And and the thing that we found a chart that we put in our report that we thought was very interesting, which shows that, you know, in COVID, the the spending kind of took a real quantum jump up. You know, government spending was in the mid fours and went to six plus and seven actually one year Uh, trillion dollars. We're talking about U.S. federal government spending. And, of course, now the COVID crisis has passed um, by a couple of years, and yet we've only come down from that peak of seven to 6.1%. So, you know, what's really keeping the economy going is, you know, Bidenomics and this inflation control plan and all these, you know, all these government programs that they're, they're out there spending on um, and money they're sending around everywhere. And so, um, and of course, they're doing it all with debt. You know, they don't have that money. They're just, you know, we're borrowing it. So, um, you know, we've kind of got a, a fake economy and, and fake GDP numbers based on, you know, the, the borrowing. And, you um, You know, it's I mean, something has got to give right either. They've got to stop borrowing so much and try and close that deficit um, or, you know, or or worse things will happen uh, in terms of, you know, people will lose faith in the currency. I mean, the the way to to go back to the inflation point, you know, the dollar has been very weak and understandably so because of, you know, this tilt toward easing. And I think that's going to continue And where I think it all becomes relevant is eventually the dollar will weaken enough that the dollar price of oil will go back up again. Um you know, we've been kind of hanging around in this eighty range, seventy eighty range. and and when that starts to happen, that that'll be the beginning of the next up wave in inflation. Um, but that might be you know three months, six months, nine months, from now, who knows? Uh, um, and the other the final point would be that it's an election year, and I saw somebody tweet out, I don't know how accurate it was. it could be wrong, but that there was actually discussion going on in washington, d c about some kind of a tax break this year in an election year to. Try and grease the skids for the election, which which it would just be shocking to me. I mean, they they absolutely positively need to get more fiscally responsible, and yet you see almost nothing in that direction. And of course, they kicked the can on the on the whole debt ceiling. You know, it doesn't have to get addressed now until January of twenty twenty five. So, you know, they can kind of do whatever they want between now and then. And my my sense is they will. And that's why I think a a deficit this year of two trillion that's the low end of the range. I think it could easily be two, 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 four, two, six, maybe even three, who knows. But, um, you know, in, a, in an election year, they're going to pull out all the stops, right?
3: And if we keep the pace of Q4, 2023, it could hit 38 trillion by 2025. Oh, yes. well, and...
1: yeah. Well, that's that's exactly right. That's that's another thing we discovered. And I wish somebody, maybe, maybe somebody smarter than we are in terms of government accounting, there might be some intergovernment accounts, but, you know, they had a deficit last year of 1.7 trillion but if you look at the debt at the beginning of the year and you look at the debt at the end of the year, you know, the difference is more like 2.5. So there's, you know, there's something like six, seven, eight trillion, $800 billion. Dollars. It's not, a, I mean, the debt's going up. The, the deficits, either the deficit's underreported or there's some kind of funny accounting going on. But yeah, I mean, and, and if you look at the the OMB reports, I mean, they were saying maybe we'd get to $38, 40000000000000 trillion dollars in 2027 or something. Well, hell no, we're going to, as you point out, Marty, we're gonna be there next year we're gonna be at the end of next year we'll be at 38 probably it,
5: and all of this stuff manifests it's manifests itself in the real world like um we were missed to not talk about like the degradation of like products and services in society we talk a lot about it here uh and other individuals but you can see material effects of like products and services being delivered in the, the most recent it's not funny but it, it kind of is in like complex systems this uh was it delta the airplane like um
1: Yeah, uh, uh, they're blowing up, yeah, they're they're, they're falling apart, right? Yeah, exactly.
3: And I think another landmine from the macro backdrop that we haven't discussed is just the geopolitical situation in the world. What's going on in the Red Sea right now? uh, A lot of the BRICS countries becoming emboldened and and, um, sort of banning together, not being happy with U.S. foreign policy. You have the Red Sea Coalition, which is a Western-led coalition in the Red Sea that has no allies that are actually in countries that border the Red Sea. None. Of, I think the only one that's involved maybe Oman. I could be wrong, but um, we're we're really expanding, trying to expand our influence, and doing it pretty sloppily right now. And you can see that situation, the election year, and you know, a geopolitical situation forming for a perfect storm of a shit show that could just really bite the u.s in the ass
1: oh absolutely yeah no and it's it's interesting everyone's kind of ignoring all that stuff right it all that's not even on the you know the radar screen right now for a lot of people everyone's thinking about just the election and the economy and yeah we could we could easily have a black swan in some other country or or at a larger level um interestingly china though has been having a lot of troubles and i saw some data that shows that they're printing like crazy too i mean In fact, I think it was Preston who had a really good chart on global M2, or maybe it was incrementum that showed that, you know, in spite of the Fed tightening and and the U.S. M 2 actually declining at a global level, it really hasn't dipped all that much. And and this isn't uncommon. I mean, all these central banks, like one guy will get tighter and then the other guys will loosen to compensate for it, right? Uh, And that's not uncommon.
2: Yeah, and I keep coming back to how the the history of um rate height cycles uh, you know they they hike they hike they hike they pause and then you know 10 months after the the last hike they start cutting um and everybody is excited that oh okay great Uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna see relief now um markets will boom but they tend to start cutting because they know that some the, the system can't that's, take it anymore.
1: you exactly right. Yeah, no, they're cutting because things are broken and very bad yeah. and they've generally always gone too far. And right. yeah, David's got a great chart on this. I don't know. Maybe you can pull it up. It shows.
4: Let me share my screen. I don't know. Is this working guys? Can you see it? This Bloomberg chart?
1: Logan's got it. We're still seeing it. There you go.
4: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's exactly that point Jesse just made that this is going back just 50 years, right? The white line is the federal funds rate. The red shades or recessions going back to nineteen seventy here. Um, we put in the blue line, the SP five hundred and gold as the sound money proxy here over fifty years. And the key thing to look at is look at the white line that go looked from left to right, going back to the seventies, every time they jacked the federal funds rate, invariably there's a pause at the top. And so if we look at uh, yeah, good, you can just see the arrow here. Like, like look at um I mean, let, let's just stop here kind of in 99-2000, in right when they raised rates in late 99-2000. Then there's a pause, and then the recession lag effect kicks in at the higher rates, and the stock market begins to break kind of in the later phases of the pause. That same thing happened with Bernanke here in 04, trying to pop the housing bubble. He paused for a year. Stock market had its blow off top before then the recession kicks in, the stock market falls over, and then they have to cut rates rapidly to try and, you know, steady the economy in this levered, fragile economy. And I think that even happened here in in 8, 17, and 18, where Bernie, uh, Powell takes the baton from Yellen as the Fed chair. He tries to, you know, end some of the shenanigans and pauses, but then everything was breaking down in the repo market. We had the December of 18 stock market collapse, and they, they stopped that, and then obviously COVID happened. But look here, I mean, here's this rapid increase of the last year uh, and change. And and here's our pause. Um, and yet the stock market's marching on, the economy ignoring all sorts of geopolitical risk. Uh, but, you know, our view is that there's a definitely a high probability of maybe the soft landing thing doesn't play out like Yellen's been skating with a Stanley Cup on. And recession ensues, stock market begins to collapse, and then all your Luke Groman Theory of now deficits really expand, uh, and the Fed is forced to kind of really not only cut rates but do a lot more QE. Here we go again. I mean that that that's that macro catalyst we were talking about that could absolutely begin to moonshot Bitcoin rapidly at that point in time. Um, but yeah, and, I think
2: go ahead. And then you get yeah, the one repeat. of those
1: pauses. Gold did extremely well, and gold was the proxy for Bitcoin in the olden right. days. Right. So.
2: Right. And And it, you know, that, that would cause the repeat of the seventies, the, the inflation spike. And then, and then it seems like it's, it's coming down. Oh, turns out you got to do a lot of stimulus. And then, uh, you have an even bigger second wave of inflation.
1: No, that's exactly right. They're always behind the curve and they, you know, they really, they really don't know what they're doing. And this is why, you know, just, we, we should never have had a central bank. I mean, they, you know, they started off. They blew a bubble. They financed World War One. You know, we had this, the mini depression of the 20, of nineteen twenty, and we had the big depression of twenty nine. I mean, it's just these guys just do it over and over again. I mean, I, you know, I tweeted a week ago. You know, Bernanke, you know, pours gasoline on his neighbor's house and then lights it on fire, and then calls the fire department and writes a book and claims he's the hero with the courage to act. I mean. You know, what the fu- what the fuck? I mean you know, I mean these guys just they just keep doing it over and over and over again. Which I actually that was interesting. In the last Powell press conference he said something I thought was interesting where he said, you know, that they were willing to start cutting before inflation headline inflation got to two percent because there's a lag effect. And it was like the first time I ever heard him, you know, talk about a lag effect and then you know, it implied that maybe he's thinking of trying to get ahead of this curve knowing what's coming. Um, but we'll see. It's um He does not want to be perceived as Burns, and yet I I don't really see how he can avoid it. I mean, the reason we're all so comfortable in our investment theses over a longer time frame is just that the math is is what it is. And, you know, one can't continue to grow the debts in excess of the underlying money supply without having eventually hit a hard wall. And so as a result... We know with, you know, as, as Foss used to say or says, you know, it's, you know, fiat debasement is 100% certainty. It's just how much and what time frame. So it's coming. And, um, you know, the, the good news is, you know, we'll have million dollar Bitcoin. You know, the bad news is we might also have $70 gasoline. We'll have to see.
5: Larry, how, how do you perceive uh, or how, do you, how does your guys' network perceive what's happening now? We know some friends mutually that introduced us and you guys made it through. Uh, and, you know, I think being recognizing gold value early helped with that. Um, but just curious, kind of like the scene up in Boston, the Northeast, you guys been around the,
1: the, yeah. the rim. It's, you know, it's kind of amazing how well Fiat has treated so many people. I mean, David's got a brother who is, has a very Fiat job, very high, high level position. <laughs> And, um, you know, it, fiat's been really good to a lot of people. And so they don't really want to recognize or, or, you know, that they might be wrong or that they might be on the wrong side of this trade. It, it kind of threatens their worldview. We do have one SMA client who was a fiat guy. I used to work with in the venture business and he went off and he did extremely well. And he's, he's probably worth half a billion dollars. And he gets it. He he completely gets it. Um but I would say he's the exception, not the rule. I think the rule, you know, in the neighborhoods that David and I live with, the people our kids played sports with, et cetera, is that, you know, uh, what are you guys talking about? You know, everything's great. You know, we're rich. We just bought a new Land Rover, you know, we make a ton of money. Um, but it's, that's all going to change. You know, it's, uh, the first shall be last is, is what I think. And, uh, can't happen soon enough from my point of view <laughs> it's been a, it's been a long time coming i mean as you guys all know i've been fighting this battle long before bitcoin existed so um which gives me the perspective to know that we are right and to also understand that there are times when it's a shitty battle to be fighting yeah. um you know and uh, you know i've been pleasantly surprised with the bitcoin price this year and you know we have bitcoin in the fund we have bitcoin companies in the fund i i'm personally half my Half my personal assets are in Bitcoin, but the other half are in gold and silver. And I must admit, the gold and silver side is driving me nuts. You know, it's like, come on, guys, let's let's get going here. Uh, and, and David and I were David and I were discussing this yesterday. I mean, there's no doubt that Bitcoin is taking some of the shine away from gold and silver. I mean, gold and silver market's about thirteen trillion dollars, but really only probably three or four trillion of that is tradable. Because a lot of it's on, you know, women's necks and jewelry in India and China and maybe 25% of it's in central banks, that's not, you know, they're adding, but they're not, they're not selling, but they're, that's not up for sale any any given day. So let's call it $4 trillion on any given day of tradable gold coins and bullion in the world, um, you know, absent the paper. (laughs) And, um, you know, at the margin, Bitcoin's a trillion dollars of total market cap. And, you know, they're young people, they're not buying any gold, they're buying Bitcoin instead. So um, while I think they will both appreciate, you know, as you guys have heard me say, there's no doubt Bitcoin's the much faster horse. Um, and I think I think gold will eventually, you know, um, become much less important in the entire sound money trade. But I also think that with the central banks doing what they're doing and the buying and and the, and the potential for a reset occurring, which I think is reasonably high, that the, those people will probably try to reset to gold before they try to reset to Bitcoin.
5: And, you know, one of the most exciting points of all this we touched on it a little bit is uh wall street's gonna get a nice surprise in that um they may f- think they get their bearings in the next couple and in- everybody globally the next let's call it 90 days uh jesse's uh version of the super bowl is you know set to happen i think right now like april 16th or whatever <laughs> and uh are just gonna get smacked in the face with this uh supply shock and the yeah, flexibility no, right. is gonna come from that uh i don't think they're prepared for
1: it's, yeah no, i it's think not that's just right super bowl again. Yeah, imagine what happens if we wake up one day and Bitcoin's $300,000. I mean, you know, think of the FOMO that's, you know, that's going to exist. And I mean, you know, now now you're a wealthy human being anywhere in the world and somebody says, you know, where are you on Bitcoin? I mean, you got to seriously start to think about it, right? I,
5: I joke around that when that happens, it obviously ties in our product and thesis, but I think people throw their keys out of the window. They become so nuclear, they're like, oh, my God, get this amount of capital out of anything that I can actually touch. I don't think we're prepared for it when that price gets to where it is. The amount of like it's going to be a very different world, um,
1: 300K BTC. When you say throw the keys, out, what do you mean? In other words, they're going to be just a ton of buyers coming into it. No,
5: I mean, like right now we sit all, I would say, fairly confident in our custody situation. We feel good, like wherever it is, solid. When that price hits 90K will be one thing, but $300,000, I don't think our brains, when he thinks about like like in my personal setup or thinking about, I was talking yesterday, I had a lot of conversations, was about um, even if I lost it all right now, I feel like I can make it back. like I, I can make the money back, but you imagine like a, a 10X from here. And you lose all of that you're like i can't ever make this back like this is there's no coming back from you know and that reality of like well what do you do with the asset it's it's just a different like calculus on how you protect something versus how we think about it today i don't think it's actually just like priced into anybody let alone people that have been looking at the asset for 10 years let alone the future buyers it's just a different world it's the gravity will completely change at 300k basically
1: yeah i mean it's hard to it's you know Thinking about how far it can go, I mean, and I, I love Sailor's comment, you know, it's going up forever, Laura, and I think he's right. But I mean, to me, I can see a couple hundred thousand, That that's clearly, you know, within my, I mean, that's like, to me, that's falling off a log, we get there in whatever time frame, but we'll get there. And I can actually see a million after that, I, I just don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've seen 50 million a coin, and Carlos Sari said that, I've seen 10, 20, you know, I mean, who knows, it's it's nuts, right? You just, you don't really know. Well. Um,
4: I was going to say, one, one data point we've looked at historically is in the late 1970s, call it seventy nine eighty. after that whole inflationary and chaotic period of the 70s, um, you, know, you had global sound money assets, gold and silver at that time, if we just isolated those two, they basically got to high single digits as a percentage of global financial assets. And so if you take gold, silver, and Bitcoin today, and say, okay, what percentage of global financial assets are those? We're we're under 1%. And and so again, in the world in the 1970s, you only had 35% debt to GDP. You didn't have 125% like you do today. That this this is a much more fragile system that now than it was then. And so you know, when we do the math on that and say, OK, well, what if you we just went back to eight percent of global financial assets on Bitcoin, gold and silver? You know, the it's pretty easy to get to prices like four hundred, five hundred thousand a coin in Bitcoin uh, and having gold and silver go a hell of a lot higher as well. Uh, but that's where that math's pretty easy um, to see if, if over the next five years. I think the one thing that people have to remember is. I think we, we live in a microwave world where we're used to having our food in 15 seconds. And I think people think, well, okay, Bitcoin will be at 400,000 by December of this year. But these things take time. And, you know, Michael, you're asking about the Boston crowd. And, and I'd say, you know, what I would say that the soccer mom, soccer dad test that I see is, everyone's in this fiat world, like Larry's saying, like, hey, the stock market works. These, these 12 central bankers seem to have the market. What, what's the Fed gonna do to save us this time? and it and it scares the hell out of all of us cuz we know we've studied this in hi- financial history enough to know like god this is this is not going to end well but i think what happens is is jeremy grantham a great value investor up here in boston has pointed out that commodities are where the great fortunes are made and and bitcoin is a commodity and it's the scarcest commodity in the world and if if you knew and if you just have an 8 year patient low time preference horizon You'll make fortunes here, given this backdrop of where we are as a percentage of global financial assets, these inflows that are coming, how commodities work, what the global central banks are going to have to do to support the global economy, the demographic challenges with baby boomers maturing, things like that. You can't kick the can much anymore. And so like this to us seems just like the highest probability, like I can't imagine any other asset outperforming Bitcoin over the next 10 years. Or even maybe five years than, than this asset class, given the scarcity, properties, and, and given that backdrop. Um, so, like I, I think everyone to answer your question, Michael, is just you know too caught up in their stock market, forty year old model world of of the Fed's got your back and rates come down, but they're they're not watching all these other trends that that yeah. we're all early on.
1: It's amazing to me how how well. You know the average investor has been trained to buy the dip because in 40 years of deflation it basically has always worked and you know that's the advantage of being 66 and you see a bunch of cycles and it's as if bear markets have been outlawed or something bear markets and stocks have been outlawed you know what i mean and that's just not realistic i mean you know you're gonna have labor cost pressures you're gonna have falling margins you're gonna have falling demand and you're going to have tighter money, and you're going to have and you're going to have better alternatives. I mean, I, I know many wealthy people who are like, why do I need to mess with the stock market? I can buy a one month treasury and get five percent. Five percent's a nice yield on all the money I've got. So, um, and by the way, I I think that five percent is going to go higher, and I think the ten years is going to go higher. I mean, I, I think the big the other big macro thing we haven't really discussed, but we, you know, we feel it very strong is that we are no longer in a deflationary world. We're just not. I mean, there are deflationary aspects of the world, as Jeff Booth points out, the technology and so forth. But, but right now, we've underinvested in real stuff for 40 years, and real stuff is about to come back with a vengeance. And so, um, you know, that's going to that's gonna change what works in the stock market. I mean, the stock market in the 70s was a bad place to be. The, the bond market in the 70s was a terrible place to be. I mean, Henry Kaufman called them certificates of confiscation. And, you know, we think this is the 70s on steroids, so, you know, to me, the biggest decision everybody's got to make right now is is they look at their asset allocation, you know, how much they want in stocks, how much they want in bonds, and then how much they want in what we consider sound money assets, and, you know, we talk to people all the time that have nothing in the sound money asset bucket, and we scream at them that they're idiots. And, of course, you know, we've got 100% in the sound money, you know, bucket, and, and probably we're idiots, too. <laughs> for, being, for being so overweight in one category but we believe what we believe and uh um, yeah. you know it's irresponsibly, it's pretty clear to us. What's that?
2: irresponsibly long, <laughs> long.
1: Irresponsibly. in a business school sense we were extremely irresponsibly long my hbs professors would would criticize me massively but you know what i, I mean I, I just don't give a fuck anymore
5: you <laughs> <laughs> probably should buy some bitcoin just in case it catches on
1: yeah well that we david and i were at a macro conference up there and i mean it's you know you want to talk about you want to be the turd in the punch bowl you just talk about bitcoin or you talk about a sovereign debt crisis i mean you got to remember i mean and and that's what leaves these people vulnerable by the way you got to remember just how fat happy and stupid all these fiat masters are i mean they think they're geniuses they just they think they're absolute geniuses. and 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 to be fair they have been i mean they've crushed us i mean it's you know um playing that game has been an extremely lucrative game to play but um history would suggest that things are changing so that's that's, that's how we see it
3: they're changing and they're changing rapidly right now etf is here
1: marty says we're gonna win right marty
3: oh we're gonna win (laughs) he's uh i mean just look at the state
1: there are days you know
3: (laughs) there there are days they're weeks, they're months sometimes during the bear markets yeah, where, right. where your spirits get
1: low. Sometimes it doesn't always feel fun. I mean, you know, it's really nice to be at this landmark where this ETF got approved, but, you know, kind of the run-up to it, it was just like, oh, really? Are, you know, we're going to have to go through all this shit again. You
3: know? yeah. It's behind us now. Now we're in the winning yeah. phase. We're always yeah. winning. Yeah. Um, Dave and Larry, it's been a pleasure. I wish we had more than an hour to talk but Likewise. it was great to have you two on today. Momentous day. Whether you think uh, getting Bitcoin exposure via the ETF is right or wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. It's in the world now. People are gonna buy it, and it seems it's like there's a lot of people buying it right now, or probably. It's
1: a good thing. There's, there's, yeah. no way it's, there's no way it's anything but a good thing. It, it does open the, the door to possible games, but I, I think it'll be harder to game this than it is, was to game gold, and so I think that's a good thing
3: awesome Great. thanks Jen. anything
2: thanks guys good well, yeah yeah fantastic dave and larry thanks for for joining us let's do this again when the uh when the crisis really hits yes
1: <laughs> yeah that'll that'll happen and uh some rivets gonna pop and it's gonna be you know march of 2020 or 2019 all over again you, you know it's coming we just don't know when yeah,
2: we'll talk about whatever acronym they come up with to plug the hole. Yeah,
1: they, I'm sure they've got a few figured out. Yeah, BTFP2. Yeah, that. exactly. Thanks, guys. Good to see y'all.
3: Thanks, guys. All right, see you guys Bye. next week.